Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Hello and welcome back to Tim Talks Politics Podcast. So glad you're here. Getting to you a little later this week than I typically like to have it out. I like to get these out to you first thing Thursday morning so you can enjoy them on your drive to work. But hopefully you'll be getting this in time for your drive to work uh, on Friday. But let's go ahead and dive in because the topic I have to talk to you today is about today is very relevant as we kind of are in these last few weeks of transitioning to a new presidency, a new presidential administration, new Congress seating. And one of the key elements of a uh, of the transition from one presidential administration to the other is the meeting of the Electoral College. Now, the Electoral College doesn't take place in one big meeting with a bunch of people. It actually takes place with a bunch of uh, electors meeting together in their several state capitals and casting their ballots for first the president and then the vice president. Now I'll get into those details and specifics in just a minute, but today is going to be about talking through the Electoral College, how it works, why we have it, and why I think we should keep it, uh, because that is a topic of uh, recurring interest is the degree to which the Electoral College is a effective institution, an institution that is useful uh, for American democracy and whether or not it should be kept. And so there's a there's an ongoing debate about the efficacy uh, and democracy, really, the uh, whether it maintains a democratic character or democratic character, enough of a democratic character, or whether we should just abolish it altogether. So I'll address that question today as well. So I'm excited to talk to you about uh, a bit of a niche topic, but uh, an important one, and one that's critical to understanding how American government functions, and that is the Electoral College. But before I dive into that, just a quick announcement. Uh, December 17th, so not this podcast, but the next podcast, uh, will be the last podcast for the year of 2020. I'll be doing a retrospective on the year, a little projection into 2021. Uh, you know, it's going to be near the end of the year. That's when everybody likes to make their uh, predictions for the coming year and all that. Uh, but the reason I'll be ending the podcast for the remainder of the year is just because after December 17th, we'll be hitting the Christmas holidays. It'll be Christmas, then New Year's. Uh, and that's when uh, a lot of people, especially in my particular industry, higher education, uh, take time off. And that's when I think a lot of people should take time off. And I'm hoping that it's going to be uh, a time for you to rest, recuperate, celebrate with your friends and family, uh, the different holidays, and hopefully be restored uh, to a certain uh, degree, whether in terms of just physical rest or mental and emotional rest or uh, having some uh, just good relationship building time. And so I I personally have made the decision, not just for my own good, but also hopefully for your good as well, to just kind of take the podcast and I'll be uh, hitting pause on my newsletter, the weekly brief as well for those two last two weeks of the year uh, so that we can all enjoy the holidays uh, with our loved ones. So just give you a heads up and I'll uh, remind you of that uh, on our next podcast. Okay, so the Electoral College. So this year, the Electoral College is going to be meeting or casting their ballots, the electors in the different states, that is, on December 14th. Now, They'll be casting ballots uh, for the United States president 
and the vice president. They're, they're cast on separate ballots. Now, it'll likely be a victory for Joe Biden, but what's significant here is that President Trump, as he continues with his slate of lawsuits, uh, alleging election fraud in, of various kinds in different states, said last week uh, that he plans to concede the election only after he is officially defeated in the Electoral College. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement because most people have been after Trump to concede. He should have conceded when his defeat was uh, projected uh, by the different media outlets. So is Trump's refusal to concede, is this just a strict reading of the Constitution, or is it sour grapes uh, on his part for having lost an election? Well, it could be a little of both, uh, but... Uh, it is important to note that the winner of the presidential election is not official until uh, the Electoral College has cast its ballots and had them counted and verified in a joint session of Congress. That is the constitutional process. So while Trump has uh, said he will concede if he's defeated at the Electoral College, the interesting thing is, I guess by strict reading of the Constitution, he could even wait to uh, concede his loss uh, until... Congress verifies the Electoral College vote on January 6th. Now, you might say, oh, please, God, no. And yeah, it would be nice if we could just kind of get closure to the presidential election at this point. I think everybody's generally exhausted uh, over the course of this uh, year in general, but the presidential election in particular. But I do want to point out, though, that in this respect, at least in the politics of the Electoral College and the politics of conceding a presidential race, it does seem like Trump is kind of adopting a, uh, a middle ground here. He won't concede based on media projections. After all, he's made no secret of his enmity towards the uh, mass media. But uh, he also is not, it doesn't seem to be a strict reading of the Constitution where he's going to wait till the count gets verified by Congress. So it's just an interesting uh, way the politics of the Electoral College are being played uh, by the president. So that's just commentary. Uh, on the current news cycle. So now let's dive into actually talking about the uh, the actual college itself or what is called the college because it's not really just one institution. Um, so this now the Electoral College does make the process of electing the president a little longer, a little more complicated. There's essentially three steps. There's the vote we have in November, which we all participated in or most of us participated in. And then there's the Electoral College vote in December. And then we have uh, the verification of the Electoral College vote in early January. So it's like one significant step each month ahead of a uh, presidential inauguration on January 20th. Now, several past elections have seen candidates uh, become presidents after losing the popular vote and winning the electoral vote. This is not necessarily an abnormal thing. That's what's happened in 2016. That's how Donald Trump got elected himself. Uh, of course, if Joe Biden is confirmed as the uh, new newly elected president, he will have won the popular vote and the electoral college vote. But how is it that a president can become president while winning votes in the electoral college, but maybe losing uh, in the total vote count in the popular vote? What gives? Is this actually undemocratic? Uh, why would the United States Constitution mandate uh, such a, you know, apparently undemocratic and odd intermediary step after a national vote? And that's what I kind of want to go over today. I'll kind of look at it a couple of different ways. We'll kind of review what the constitutional process is. I've kind of been making comments on it here and there. And then I'm going to use two 
articles or essays uh, that I've come across in the last week in my doing my research on the Electoral College to frame for you both the argument for abolishing the Electoral College and the argument for keeping it. And then we'll kind of do a summation of it at the end. So what does the Constitution say about the Electoral College? Now, I'm not going to read it word for word because I already have read it word for word, and I'll put links to the show notes in, to my uh, podcast series that I did over the summer on the U.S. Constitution. But the short form is, is that the Electoral College and its processes and purposes are outlined in Article 2 of the uh, Constitution, specifically Article 2, Section 1, where they talk about how the U.S. president is elected. Uh, now, the process of the Electoral College was amended by the 20th Amendment, and that is what gives us the separate ballots for the vice presidential candidate, because the office of the vice president has gone through some changes over time. Originally, uh, the Electoral College only selected the president, and then whoever was the runner-up, whoever lost the presidential election. Whoever was second place became the, the vice president. And then we moved to uh, full tickets, and then obviously we now have the system we have now where uh, you have the ticket, the presidential candidate and the vice presidential candidate, but now they are both duly elected by the Electoral College. So in some incredible fluke, you could end up with a, uh, a president who's elected by the uh, Electoral College whose vice president is not the person they campaigned with, but in fact somebody else elected by the Electoral College. Highly unlikely, especially now, because 26 states actually have laws against uh, what are called faithless electors. Uh, that is, members of the Electoral College who cast their vote for someone other than the winner of the state's vote. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. And faithless electors are very, very rare. There's only been like a handful, probably less than 10 over the course of the entirety of American history. So, I mean, it's not like this is a a uh, common occurrence. And so, yeah, theoretically it could happen, but highly unlikely. Now, how do we get electors? Who gets to be the, you know, the member of the Electoral College who casts a, casts a vote for a particular candidate? Well, just before the election, just before the general election in November, uh, each party uh, appoints a slate of electors in each state. So the Republicans will have their slate of electors in California. The Democrats will have their slate of electors in California. And whoever wins, whichever presidential candidate wins, the popular vote of that state gets to have their slate of electors cast their ballots in December. And by the way, if you want to know why it's December 14th, fun fact here, uh, there was an act of Congress passed in 1936 that's mandated the specific date on which all the electoral votes are to be cast. And that is the, and I love these, uh, these quirky uh, dates and considerations, that is the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. So first Monday after the second Wednesday. So you kind of look at your, your December calendar and go like, here's the first Wednesday, here's the second Wednesday. Okay, the following Monday, that's when the Electoral College votes. Uh, I don't know why they chose it that way. It's kind of weird, but, you know, whatever. There it is. So on that day, the electors for whoever won in their state capital uh, go to, I'm sorry, whoever won their state popular election for the presidency, go to their state capital and uh, cast their ballots for president and vice president, and those ballots are sealed, they're delivered to Congress, and then uh, when the new Congress is seated, so the new Congress, so everybody who won their 
congrats their house seat or senatorial seat uh, on election day this year they get seated i think it's on like january 3rd or 4th or 5th or something like that january 6th is when they meet in joint session unseal those electoral college ballots tally them up in alphabetical order of states and boom we have an officially certified electoral college vote the president and who will be the next president is official at that point and then two weeks later we have inauguration day that's why inauguration day happens january 20th that's why there's a two and a half month gap um actually two and a half yeah two and a half month gap between election day and inauguration day and so that process can work itself out it also is a way of uh, establishing uh, the primacy of congress over that of the presidency it's really important to remember that when the u.s constitution was drafted the presidency the office of the president was not in uh, envisioned as being the most powerful element of government and when you look at the organization of the constitution uh, the article one is what covers the legislative branch congress uh, and when you look at the sequence of election and the changeover in government it is the new congress that is sworn in and seated first then the president so there, there's a very specific uh, uh, constitutionally ordered process uh, here that gives the legislative branch primacy over the executive branch and that was very intentional remember america fought for its independence from great britain to rid itself of the tyranny of an executive branch specifically a tyranny of monarchy uh, but and for reasons i'll get into in a little bit in a little bit the founders were not just concerned about the tyranny of an individual or the tyranny of the executive they were concerned about the tyranny of the mob as well majoritarian tyranny as uh, alexis de tocqueville would uh, would famously discuss and so that is kind of the hinge on which the argument over the Electoral College turns. But I'll get on that in just a minute. It's also important to note that the Electoral College, the system of the Electoral College, uh, was established as a compromise, but as so many other components of the American system were established, as a compromise between delegates at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Uh, there were delegates who were more of the kind of like... Uh, Republican Jeffersonian Republicans who wanted the people, the people being you know citizens of proper age, uh, to elect the president. So very much the national popular vote crowd, and those who wanted Congress to appoint the president. You might call these the kind of like I guess high Republicans, the ones who kind of look back at the, like the Roman Republic of ancient times and said that's how you choose leaders. Uh, and so they they saw a popularly elected president as posing a danger for a majoritarian tyranny. They saw it as being too democratic. So they looked back to the uh, to the democracy of ancient Athens and were like, hey, it's too easy for demagogues to arise and, and be abusive of power and stuff like that. So the compromise was, well, let's put a system in place, this intermediary step that essentially chooses the president by mixing both a popular vote and kind of a representational or legislative vote. And what's at issue when it comes to the Electoral College, or rather what the Electoral College as an institution stands for, is representation. What does representation mean in a democratic system? In a rep you know, when you talk about representative forms of government, 
there's questions in political philosophy about what is representation? Who gets represented? How do you know they're being represented accurately? How can one person represent thousands uh, of you know, opposing interests and, 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 and things of that nature? Uh, how can you, in other words, and it goes back to that core issue of political philosophy of justice, how is a general population, a mass population, to be justly represented? What does that look like? That's fundamentally what the Founding Fathers are trying to answer with the Electoral College. Now, that brings us to today and the debate over the Electoral College. Now, if you look, listen to a lot of mainstream commentary and listen to, uh, well, you don't even have to listen to a bunch of mainstream commentary because the Washington Post actually did a great job for us. On November 15th, just a Less than two weeks after this year's election, uh, the editors of Washington Post wrote an editorial that had the very simple headline, Abolish the Electoral College. It was one of the strongest mainstream statements uh, from the mainstream press on abolishing the Electoral College. And in that article, uh, the editors of the Washington Post kind of articulated that, what I would call the mainstream argument for uh, abolishing the Electoral College. So I'm going to outline it in a little bit, and then I'll offer a response from another source for it. So here's what they said. I'll actually quote from the article uh, specifically. So this is the editors of the Washington Post. They said, the Electoral College, whatever virtues it may have had for the Founding Fathers, is no longer tenable for American democracy. The abolishment uh, of the Electoral College is not a new issue and has been frequently debated uh, around election years. So here's what we need to talk about here. Is this fun, this statement, the Electoral College, whatever virtues it may have had for the Founding Fathers, is no longer tenable for American democracy. Now again, like I just said, this is not necessarily a new thing. I mean, even back in the very close 1960 election that saw John F. Kennedy narrowly defeat uh, Richard Nixon, uh, the, there was talk then about abolishing the Electoral College, and then it came back up again in the 1970s, and then it came up again in 2000. Uh, so every time there's been a close election or a contested election, and by contested I just mean uh, that you know a losing side was not happy with the result, uh, there's been this discussion of, well, should we have the Electoral College? So the Washington Post is not necessarily breaking new ground here, uh, but they do, we do see uh, a certain... Uh, ideological edge taken to the argument now because in the last two close and contested elections where we saw a candidate lose the popular vote and then win the electoral vote it was 2000 and 2016 and in both cases it was the Republican candidates who won office while losing the popular vote and so the abolitionist at the abolishment sorry, the abolition, whatever you want to call it, of the Electoral College has become uh, kind of a talking point, primarily of uh, Democrats and the political left. Uh, but just so you know, it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be, I should say, a partisan issue because it's had its advocates on either side of the aisle over time. But the quote I just read uh, from the editors of the Washington Post um, is an articulation of that mainstream sentiment so let's kind of break it down a little bit. The argument to abolish the Electoral College uh, is usually one that's based on a, a series of premises, uh, which the Washington Post article all, all articulates. 
One, uh, it, it believes that the Electoral College forces uh, presidential candidates to spend time uh, working to win votes in smaller, less populated states. And the sub-argument here is that less populous states are therefore given more political clout in the political system, uh, it, just like they have in the Senate. And the argument is, if we're concerned about s smaller states, if we're concerned about the power of smaller uh, states and their populations, we shouldn't be because that's what equal representation for the states in the Senate is all about. The next premise looks at the 50 states plus Washington DC and Puerto Rico who also have electoral college votes uh, as uh, conducting their elections all differently. Because there are basically 52 ways of conducting elections uh, at the level, it creates uh, a lot of differences. And, and so there's this question, again, it, it, behind this kind of critique of how we conduct presidential elections is that because they're all done differently, then uh, we have a, a variety of ways in which uh, people are elected to office. And so that affects participation, voter turnout, things of that nature. And so it's kind of this haunted by this question of, are we truly representing everybody? Which is actually something to be concerned about, which is always something we should be concerned about. Uh, then the third premise of the argument to abolish the Electoral College is that majority rule is normative for democratic elections. In other words, if you want to say you have a democracy, then your primary method of decision-making, especially in elections, should be majority rules. And that's probably going to be the biggest premise I'm going to uh, touch on later. Now, this position of abolishing the Electoral College, and I hand it to the, uh, I commend the editors of Washington Post for discussing it this way, is they acknowledge that there are problems with abolishing the Electoral College that would create uh, some problems. It's not necessarily going to be this like uh, instant fix it, so to speak. Uh, they recognize that in order to abolish the Electoral College, you actually have to amend the Constitution, and that that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I talk through why that's difficult uh, in this series on the Constitution. They also acknowledge that when you abolish the Electoral College, you'll probably see an increase of regionalism. Now, what's regionalism? Regionalism is just this idea that you'll see the different regions of the United States kind of uh, fall back to very strictly articulated regional cultures and identities, and that those will become primary uh, in national politics as uh, presidential candidates kind of appeal to the heavily populated areas of, of, um, of America. And the follow-on to this concern is that this would lead to greater extremism and polarization. And we kind of already see this uh, today. I mean, people talk about the blue coasts and the red flyover country. They talk about blue urban areas, purple suburban areas, red rural areas. So we, we kind of see some of that regionalism happening even now in our current system. And they acknowledge that by abolishing the Electoral College, this would increase that. And they also acknowledge that a national voting system has its uh, has its own problems. You know, having 50 plus different ways of carrying out a, a presidential election is problematic in some ways, but having one single way of uh, conducting an election is also problematic. It that requires its own, its own bureaucracy, its own voter security system, etc. But here's the thing that I don't think this editorial acknowledges very clearly, is that even as they acknowledge that it could lead to increased regionalism, which triggers greater extremism and polarization, and they don't seem to acknowledge that we 
it's, it's not like we don't know the effects of extreme regionalism and polarization, especially in democracies. We actually do know those effects. Uh, there's been a lot of great work done on in democratic theory, uh, in comparative government, uh, comparing different countries that have representative forms of government around the world. And what we know is that when you have uh, strong regional identities, and when those regional identities are kind of like ruled over by a permanent majority, uh, that that often leads to um, conflict, not just like political, not just like political infighting or something. We're talking civil war. We're talking, you know, we're talking armed camps, gun battles. Uh, we're talking about civilian deaths and refugee flows. It's not a pretty picture. Uh, and so there seems to be a, uh, in the editorial by the Washington Post editors here, seems to be a kind of a lack of acknowledging that it's not like increased regionalism is not just a thing or a word or a phrase. It's It can lead to some pretty devastating real consequences. And we actually have a very good empirical record of that. And so it's not something that's being really engaged with here. And I actually wrote an article about this uh, critiquing a uh, the this kind of view of embracing America's polarized regional politics uh, in in my article on my website uh, called Against Conservative Populism or Against American Divorce. And it was my response to this kind of conservative populist position that actually, in a funny way, uh, echoes the the droll way in which the Washington Post kind of just offhandedly says, ah, increased regionalism, but no big deal. I think it. I think it is a big deal, and I think it's a big deal simply because there's a pretty good record of civil war that comes from those scenarios. And then the second thing that the editorial doesn't really seem to address here is that there's some major security problems with national votes. Now, a lot of people were talking about uh, election security and election fraud uh, in this election, in the 2016 election, but what often gets missed is how difficult it is to hack an election when it's being done differently in 50 different 50 plus different ways. Uh, if you want to try to hack a national election, uh, you have to kind of develop 50 plus different strategies on how to do that because each state and plus DC and Puerto Rico are doing it differently. They're managing it differently. Uh, and so that's just really, really hard to do. Uh, it's very difficult to do. Now, of course, to come back there as well, you just need to focus on a few battleground states. That's kind of the whole election stealing, election fraud argument right now from the Trump administration. Uh, but even there, that isn't really acknowledging the difficulty because you still have to look at you know multiple battleground states. Even just trying to hack five uh, states is incredibly difficult. We're still talking about uh, a, a difficulty in increasing orders of magnitude. When you have a national polling system for a national uh, vote, uh, you really only just have to hack one system, uh, whether that's like literal cyber hacking or, you know, hacking in other ways. So we generally tend to um, downplay the problem of very highly centralized national voting um, systems. And again, we have pretty good empirics here of how they frequently get abused in other countries. Okay, so that's kind of like my initial reaction to the specific editorial from the Washington Post. But um, all that to say, uh, I do think they present the kind of like most cohesive argument of this kind of mainstream position of abolishing the Electoral College. Fundamentally, it's seen as 
uh, it's seen as undemocratic and it's seen as undemocratic because it's premised on the idea that majority rule is normative for democratic elections and decision making. Okay, that being said, the advocates for the, uh, the electoral college, the ones who say, no, we absolutely need to keep it, I should note here, uh, just because I consider myself one of those advocates, is that it's not like advocates of the Electoral College don't acknowledge that it has its issues and that it could probably use some reform and that there's even ways to reform it. Again, there's good empirics here. We actually have two states, Maine and Nebraska, that do split their uh, electors based on the percentage of their popular vote within their state. I'm a big fan of that uh, method, actually, and I wish other states would adopt it. But uh, so all that to say is there's reason to believe that there's ways to reform the Electoral College. So one of the great apologists for the Electoral College was the late Dr. Michael Yulman. He was a senior fellow and faculty member at uh, the Claremont Institute, uh, and he was a, a longtime uh, faculty member at uh, Claremont Graduate Inst University, where I'm currently getting my uh, doctorate in political science. Uh, and I've actually had the opportunity to talk with uh, Dr. Yulman uh, before his untimely death uh, last year. Uh, but he was an interesting individual because he's not just a kind of a, he's not just like your theoretical political science professor guy. Uh, he actually had a very active uh, legal and political career. And in fact, in the 1970s, when the question about abolishing the Electoral College was again uh, circling through Congress, uh, Dr. Yulman, who was then working in the Senate, uh, was tasked with writing a memo or brief on the Electoral College. And he wrote what famously be called, became known as the Yulman Essay uh, that defended the Electoral College and for some has been pointed to as the single document that has preserved the Electoral College up to the present day. Now, I'm not going to go through that whole essay right now, but I am going to articulate, since this guy seems to be acknowledged by many, at least on the... Uh, on the among the apologists for the Electoral College as being the guy who saved the Electoral College. I figured we should probably articulate his, uh, his position on the Electoral College and how he saw it as being actually a bulwark in defense of American democracy. So uh, it's interesting to note that what the Washington Post editors see as being problematic uh, for American democracy from the Electoral College uh, Dr. Yulman actually saw as being features, not bugs, of the American political system, and that that's kind of what uh, made the Electoral College not only unique in its way, but also uh, uniquely uh, strengthening to American democracy. So Dr. Yulman starts his defense of the Electoral College with this uh, idea that because America is a federal republic, we have to recognize that we're not just one national entity. We're actually 50 republics, the states, combined into one national entity. And it's the recognition of that political reality that gives us the, uh, kind of brings us back to that question of representation. Representation in a federal republic context, according to Yulman, means that a president can't just represent the simple majority of the national population. That's not what representation means in America. Representation means that in part, but it also means that representation should mean the majority of states as well. And that's because that regardless of its population, each state has its own unique 
contribution that it makes, its own unique set of interests, its own unique set of, uh, of concerns that it brings to the table, uh, regardless of how large its population is. So the president has to campaign in different states. Yulman argues that the president should campaign in different states, that the president uh, candidates, uh, well, presidents who become president, who get elected president, uh, should form their cabinet from residents of different states, not just from, uh, you know, population centers or from one kind of like national party entity. But here's where Yulman's argument, I think, really starts to push back hard against the kind of editors of the Washington Post. Yulman's position on keeping the Electoral College is that if you change the mode of electing the president, you're actually changing the character of the American political system. It's no longer a federal republic. It's now a mass democracy. And somewhat ironically, his argument was that choosing the president based on a national popular vote, only based on a national popular vote, actually makes America less democratic, not more. And that is because it's based on um, the rule of a majority. And the, and the thought here is that presidential candidates will craft less moderate messages because they only have to campaign in a few critical population centers. Uh, they only have to uh, sway a particular percentage of the people, and then they largely can ignore the other, the concerns of the other half, uh, and rather than um, in developing platforms designed to, uh, in, you know, it's designed for bigger and broader coalitions. The idea here is that uh, what Yulman basically argues is that the Electoral College was designed to protect against majoritarian tyranny even as much as the, uh, the Congress and its kind of primacy to the executive were designed to check against executive uh, tyranny. Now, you might say to yourself, how can a majority be tyrannical? Well, it can be tyrannical in a variety of different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be violently tyrannical, but ma majority tyranny and uh, Alexis de Tocqueville talks a lot about this in his Democracy in America, but majority of tyranny uh, begins to impact social values, cultural values, uh, the way we do business. Um, it begins to impact right down to individual behavior. When we're aware of a majority and the mores of a majority, we change our behavior to, if not be in line with that majority, then to at least not antagonize it, because then the social and cultural pressure comes to bear to conform uh, to the majority's beliefs, values, etc. And, and Alexis de Tocqueville actually saw majoritarian tyranny as being a unique uh, blind spot for American democracy, even as he celebrated America as the country who in the early 1800s was doing uh, representative democracy the best. Uh, even in contrast to his native France, he still recognized that majoritarian tyranny was a uh, was a potentially unique blind spot uh, for America and could see a return to tyranny. So tyranny doesn't just happen. Authoritarian dictatorship doesn't just happen at the hands of one individual or a small group of individual. It can happen at the hands of a majority, a permanent majority, a majority that can hold power regardless of what whatever coalition of minority groups might believe and might uh, do. And 
another uh, theorist of democracy, Adam Pajorski, has argued precisely in his uh, work on in such countries as Egypt and countries of Latin America, that that is what often leads to destabilized and destroyed democracies is that exact problem. You have uh, groups that can uh, achieve power uh, and achieve an absolute majority who then tyrannize uh, minority groups, uh, whether they be ethnic minorities or religious minorities, etc. They can tyrannize them, and these often are the drivers that can uh, trigger civil war or certainly trigger the emergence of authoritarian dictators. So it's not just that you have to be concerned about tyranny of the minority, the small group. The way the Founding Fathers saw it is there were two tyrannies to check against. It's a spectrum. Uh, politics is a spectrum. You know, the rule of the few versus the rule of the many, and either, either extreme can lead to a tyrannical dictatorship of some form. And the Electoral College was put in place, yes, as a compromise, but specifically as a means in which to check against the abuse either of the minority or the majority. So that's, the, that's kind of the argument of Michael Ullman as he pushes back against, uh, against kind of the, the view of abolishing the Electoral College. And that kind of gets to the point about who gets represented in the American system with an Electoral College. Is it the individual citizens who are voting or is it the states? And the answer is both. Because at the end of the day, you're participating as a citizen of your state and as a citizen of the United States. And the Electoral College is designed to uh, represent that in a very similar way to which your congressional representative and your senator are in Congress to represent your interests, both your local interests in your immediate uh, district and your kind of state level interests. The Electoral College is designed to uh, kind of mirror that dynamic. And as I was thinking about this, uh, the, I, a question came to my mind as I was thinking about representation and this idea, this premise that the uh, Washington Post editors kind of brought forward as seeing like as being that majority, uh, uh, sorry, majority rule should be normative for a democracy. And I thought, what areas in my life, you know, so I'm thinking work, school, family, etc. Uh, what areas in my life operate purely on simple majority decision making rules? What areas of your life operate that way where you know, majority rules all the time, and that just defines what happens next. And while that definitely happens in some places, I also realize it doesn't happen in every place. So there's a, there's a recognition in human experience that right decision-making, good decision-making, even in a democratic society, does not have to be majoritarian, uh, majoritarian does not have to be based on the majority, uh, because ultimately we're concerned about representing everyone, not just the majority. So how effective would you say, so the follow-up here is, how effective would you say that majority decision-making, majority rule, how effective would you say that process is? You know, is it is its perceived effectiveness based on whether or not you land in the majority or minority? Because we all land, depending on different topics, issues, decisions, we all have experiences of being in the majority or minority. So does your advocacy for majority rules decision-making is that dependent on whether you know you're in a majority or minority? Because if it's dependent, I would say we probably shouldn't back a kind of across-the-board majority rule good position as the uh, as the 
editors of the Washington Post seem to articulate. So those are some questions that were coming to my mind, and they basically come down to this idea of what do we see as being some of the potential problems uh, for majority-only decision-making. Uh, there are certainly some potential problems of which I outlined already. Uh, if you're interested in additional uh, thoughts on this, I'll link to the uh, Michael Yulman essay that on the Electoral College that he wrote in 2000, just after the Gore-Bush uh, election. I'll also link to the Washington Post editorial, as well as the National Archives overview of the Electoral College. So in closing this uh, discussion, I want to read to you a quote from the Michael Yulman essay, since I read to you a brief quote from the Washington Post editorial. I'll close with this, because I think it's a useful quote to kind of remind us that the Electoral College is not just a idiosyncratic, kind of like stick it on there piece of the American uh, political system. It's actually an integrated piece of the political system, and it's an integrated piece of a very specific kind of political system. And here's what Michael Yulman says about the idea of representation and you know, what does it mean to elect our leaders in this political system. He says this, if elections were simply a matter of counting heads and stopping when you got to 50% plus one, we could dispense with all the checks and balances of the constitution, including federalism, bicameralism, the separation of powers, and yes, the electoral college. The point of these time-honored devices, which are, all, which are all part of an integral whole, is not to circumvent popular sentiment, but to shape and channel it in ways that support the principal end for which popular government is constituted, to secure the equal rights of all. Majority rule can become majority tyranny, as the wisest thinkers on politics have always known. The trick in establishing popular government is to empower the majority without endangering the rights of minorities. That's Dr. Michael Yulman, but I'll say I generally agree with him on, on this take on the Electoral College, and that's why even as we anticipate the Electoral College meeting on December 14th, I say God bless him, and let's keep him going. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malosh. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.